Indeed, we, we serve a God that is deserving of all of our praise. He's deserving of all that our lives have to offer because we have indeed been blessed by him to know him, to love him, to call him Lord. So thank you, worship team, for, for leading us this morning. Uh, this morning, I'm going to call your attention to a passage of Scripture that I think is very challenging, but very appropriate for the days that we live in today. I'm going to, uh, to ask you to, to stand with me in just a second. As you do, I'm going to, to ask you to find the 13th chapter of the book of Romans. We're going to be reading Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. That's on page 948 and the, uh, the Bible that's provided before you uh, in your chair. So if you are able and would join in worship with me today, please stand as we read this passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. It reads as follows. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousies. And verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. You may be seated as the Lord blesses the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I particularly would like for you to take a look at what Paul presents in the second sentence of verse number 11. Paul says, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And as we think about that theme, let me just lay some groundwork and clear up a couple points of clarification. What does it mean that salvation is nearer now than when we first believe. Well, Paul is using the word salvation not as a reference to the point in time when a lost sinner is made right in the eyes of God. That is what we call being saved. And just a quick word of remembrance about what it means to be saved. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul lays out the understanding of what it means for a lost sinner to be justified before a holy God. Salvation is the act of a loving God who, un who extends unmerited favor to those who don't deserve it and have no means of obtaining it. The Bible says that we were lost, we were dead, and our transgressions and sins. Unredeemed people are enemies of God. They don't even dare to seek after God. That's a dark, dark, 
dark state that all sinners find themselves in. But sadly, they don't even realize it. And that's what it once was like for everyone who's sitting here this morning who calls upon the Lord Jesus as Savior and God. We were all running away from God and did not even realize it. We were all headed to a place of eternal separation from God. We call that place hell, where for eternity we would be separated from the love of God. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because of one man's act, our eternal destiny has been changed. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So what is Paul talking about that salvation is nearer now? The, the phrase that salvation is nearer now is what Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God has set aside a special time for the church to carry out the gospel message of Christ. But that that time that God has set aside is rapidly coming to an end. Salvation is nearer now than ever before. The Bible repeatedly speaks to the time that we are living in as a unique era in the history of humanity by which God has set aside the work of the gospel of God's grace to be carried out by his people into the entire world. Today is the day of salvation, the era of darkness where the prince of the power of the air is at work at the hearts of man to attack the very gospel of Christ. And it's this thought, this thought should always be on the forefront of our minds, especially for those who have been rescued from the darkness by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is communicating a clear standard by which the church of Jesus Christ must have in regards to the second coming of Christ. It is nearer today than it's ever been before. So be ready. It is nearer today than ever before. So be ready. Today is the day of salvation, but tomorrow is right around the corner. Now, the New Testament repeatedly uses the word today to, to, to refer to this era of salvation. You know, we're currently in a series of messages from the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Don't settle for anything less. That's the topic that Pastor Sam has used. In chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, the word today is used to represent the urgency of this unique period of time. Uh, chapter 3, verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 3, verse 15 says, As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today 
It's the time that has been given unto humanity to accept God's gracious gift of salvation. When today has come to an end, so will this offer of salvation. We must hear God's words to us, beloved, as we think about our responsibility today. For salvation is nearer now than it's ever been before. Paul adds a sense of urgency in this passage. Look again at verse 13. He says in verse 11, he says, Besides this, you know the time. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. Verse 12, listen at these words. He says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Cast off deceitfulness and darkness. Put on the armor of light. You know, unfortunately, lost sinners are not really aware of the pending doom that awaits them. They are busy living their lives, focusing on the cares of this world. Frankly, they could care less about the issues of God and what's important to him. In a way, you could almost understand their foolishness. They just don't know any better. But the same cannot be the said for believers of Christ. We should know better. And it's to our shame if for some reason we ignore the fact that the day of salvation is quickly drawing to a close. It, it, it kind of reminds me of the situation the children of Israel found themselves in during the times of the judges. There was not a judge in Israel. And in spite of their commitment to serve God with all their heart, all their mind, with all their soul, they turned away from him and embraced the culture that was there in the land. Eventually, the Bible tells us sadly in Judges 21-25, it says that in those days there were no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, at least just like the deception of unbelievers who are deceived, the people of Israel acted as if they had an excuse. There was no king in Israel. But, beloved, that can't be our excuse. For, day, for today, we have a king, and his name is Jesus. Our king is coming soon, and he will judge if we are doing what is right in our own eyes. You know, I think we're kind of all familiar with the phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You think about our group being in Rome this morning. When in Rome do as the Romans do. You know, that little proverb is loaded with meanings, and it has a long, long history. Back in uh, 1621, a, a British play playwright, Robert Burton, incorporated this line in his play. The name of the play was The Anatomy of Melancholy. I'd love to go see that. And, and, what, and what Robert said was, when they were at Rome... They did there as they see done. 
Now, there are a lot of implications from that phrase. On the positive side, it speaks to the sensitivity we are wise to display when we're visiting another country and seek not to, to do any unjust offense. Especially offense that would prove counterproductive to the mission that we're trying to accomplish while in that country. You know, missionaries are taught to re be respectful of the indigenous culture of the people that they are witnessing to because of the importance of not building any needless offense to the gospel of Christ. You know, Paul kind of echoed that sentiment as well. Uh, to his Jewish friends, Paul said that he would become a Jew in order to win the Jews for Christ. Well, he said also that if he needed to become like the Gentiles, those who are without the law, that he would become like those that are without the law. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, Paul is obviously operating under the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and he's doing so as he has in his heart a desire to win the loss for Christ. Don't let culture get in our way. So in, many, in a very limited respect, doing as the Romans do may be beneficial to the cause of Christ. But on the other hand, doing as the Romans do can prove problematic. Doing as the Romans do may prove devastating to advancing the kingdom of Christ. To become like the Romans and have that divert you from the cause of Christ as being your primary mission in life is to be avoided at all costs. You know, Paul's letter to Rome is a great thesis of God's theology for us to learn. And Paul was writing to the church at Rome with the desperate hope of visiting there. But yet the opportunity had not presented itself. Sadly, Later in life, Paul would indeed visit Rome, and he would die there as well. So in writing the letter to Rome, Paul knows the pressure of doing as the Romans do. And so as, as, as we look at Romans, you know, Romans is a very deep and intricate book. The first 11 chapters capture the theological basis for justification by faith alone. And now, Paul recognized that he could not just grow willy-nilly into that city without putting forth a sound position of why he believed the way he did. So he lays out one of the strongest arguments in the Bible about justification of the lost sinner. But then in chapter 12, Paul starts to move from the theological to the practical. Good theology always drives good practice. So in Romans 12, one through the first two verses of Romans 12, let me read to you what Paul says about how theology should play out in your lives. He says in verse 1 of chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable don't do as the Romans do, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, he says, 
don't do as the Romans do. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Did you catch that command in verse 2? Do not be conformed to the world. In other words, when in Rome, don't do what the Romans do. But you know, it's interesting. Earlier I said that Paul said, I will, be, I will become all things to win some. Is, is Paul speaking with mixed metaphors just to suit his fancy? To the Roman church, he's telling them to resist and not to conform. What is it? Well, obviously, Paul is not contradicting himself in the very least. He's rather emphasizing the fact that as believers, we must be very discerning in our mission to build the kingdom of God when it comes to living in a worldly culture. Now, Jesus made a similar point. Back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In other words, we need to put our thinking caps on. We need to learn to apply the wisdom and the truth of God wisely in everything that we do. We live in a day when it's so easy to get sidetracked by culture and lose sight of our primary mission in life. Now, hopefully that didn't sound a bit melodramatic, and I really don't want to come across that way at all, at all but, but we've got to think about what Rome represents. Rome was the epicenter of the world in that time. You know, there was another familiar phrase. It said, all roads lead to Rome. And that captures the importance of that ancient city. The Romans ruled the world, and their Rome was their ruling city. There was great pressure to do as the Romans did, not only in Rome, but throughout the entire empire. And, and you know, it was an empire. It was a culture that was dominated by corrupt government, military conquest and wars, wealth and greed, impurity of all kinds, lust, human philosophy, false religions, etc., etc. You know, it, it kind of sounds like the world we live in today. We live in a world where it's so easy for believers to get caught up in culture and forget about the return of the king. God challenges us today to stay on point, to stay focused, and to understand that the night is far gone and the day is near. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousies, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, Paul gives us really clear instructions on what we ought to focus on during the time that is remaining before the return of Christ. We ought to walk properly 
as befitting children of the king. You know, the contrast of walking exposed in the daytime as, around, as far as sneaking around in the nighttime is very provocative. You know, for most of us, being exposed in the daytime reminds us to be on our best behavior. At least, I hope we can relate to that reality. We at least should go around walking in the daytime hoping that our sins are not exposed for everyone to see. And even if we struggle with that expectation, I pray that at least we have that hope in our hearts. But under the cover of darkness, under the cover of darkness, it's easy to hide our sins and think we can get away with it. You know, it it, it amazes me how easy it has become to live under cover. One reason that it's so easy to live under cover is because of boxes. It's because of boxes. It's easy to live to go under cover because we live in a box of darkness that comes into our lives through boxes. Now, come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. Boxes. I'm talking about the little cardboard box or the little black box. You know, like, let's take the cardboard box. You know, it comes conveniently in all shapes and sizes and colors so that we can get what we want. And it's so easy to do. You know, the boxes are dropped off at our front door from Amazon and from Walmart by UPS or FedEx or U.S. Mail so that we can live undercover in the darkness right in the safety of our homes. We don't have to be exposed in the daytime by going to the store anymore to get our stuff in public. All we need to do is have the box delivered to our door. Now, do you guys want me to talk about what's in some of those boxes? Okay. I won't. (laughs) I'm not going to get in trouble up here. (laughs) But, oh, Lord, don't let me start talking about the little black box. I don't act like you don't know about the little black box. I'm talking about that little black electronic box. I'm talking about the one that you can get Netflix on or you can get the HBO grown-up, don't let your, your kids look at this stuff, box. That's the box I'm talking about. It, it's that little box, that little black and electronic box that we can customize to suit our own taste any way you like it. We better just pray that Jesus doesn't come back when we're watching Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And that's why in verse 13, Paul quickly followed up with verse 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desire. To defeat the boxes we live in today, we have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In just a moment of application, I'm going to talk about one of our great enemies, the great enemy of Christ and the church. But you know, we don't have to look far to find an enemy that most often is our biggest foe. It's our flesh. Our flesh, with its passions and desires, is seeking to keep us living in the box. 
We like what comes in the boxes. Amazon made $177.9 billion last year delivering stuff in the box. The fastest growing outlet for pornography is mail order. One of the biggest issues facing the U.S. justice system today is how to control the distribution of illicit drugs via the mail system. The rental of X-rated movies and materials online is off the chart. Why? Why? It's because humanity desires to gratify its flesh. And sadly, believers get caught up in those dark sins as well. There has never been a time in the entire history of humanity where it's easier for us to sin than it is today in the darkest ways. But what did Paul tell us? He said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only solution that will work. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So how do we do this? How do we behave and, and stay focused on the fact that this era is coming to us in and Christ is returning? Let me quickly give you three points of application. Salvation is nearer now than ever before, and it requires that we stay focused on the end of the age. Now, if I haven't convinced you yet, let me say it again very clearly. We are indeed living in the last days. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 25, so you may want to move your way towards that chapter. Um, now, now, let me also be very clear about this. I am not in the business of predicting when Christ is going to come back the exact day or the exact hour. We know that that is foolishness because Christ has said that no man knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man will return in all of his glory. Yet I will declare to you this morning that I believe everything is in place for the imminent return of the King. And that is a theme that resonates throughout the New Testament. Uh, James, the brother of Christ, wrote his epistle that bears his name that testifies to this fact. In chapter 5 of the epistle of James, verses 7 to 9, listen to these words. James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you too may not be judged. Behold, listen to these words, behold, the judge is standing at the door. The judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, is standing at the door, and he's almost ready to come back. The apostle Peter, 1 Peter 4, 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things 
is at hand. Now, I, I do contend that the signs of the times given in the New Testament have been fulfilled to some degree or another. And, and there can be little argument that the Bible has presented as characteristics the times before the return of Christ. And these characteristics have been evidence for the last 2,000 years of human histories. We've seen people that have turned away from the true faith, rejection of the gospel, self-love and, and love of sin, wars and rumors of wars, and natural disasters. Every generation has seen these things come. So how, why are we different? How do we know? It's because Scripture points us in that direction. I think we can all agree that the Apostle John is an authoritative source on the end times. After all, I think he's penned the most uh, authoritative and crowning jewel of biblical prophecy, the book of Revelation. The Holy Spirit also uh, inspired John to write another epistle that speaks directly to the question of the intimate return of Christ. It's 1 John verses 2.18. 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, past tense. Therefore, and what does he say? He says, therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The church was already in the last days, even before the death of all the apostles. So that begs the question, if the end is, is so near, why is the Lord taking such a long time? And that's a great question. But again, all we need to do is turn to Scripture, and it provides the answers for our questions. The apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.8, he says, do not overlap Overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the, de the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Here's the simple fact. God's time is not necessarily our time, and it's his time that's important. But there's something even more significant that God wants us to see in this passage. Just move down to the next verse. In verse 9, of 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Don't we serve a loving God? God loves us so much that he is patient towards us, not desiring that any should perish. You know, I'm anticipating the Lord's return at any moment, but I don't want it to be a moment too soon. Only God knows the day and the specific time that Christ will return, and that's really none of our business. But what is our business? Our business as stewards of the Lord Jesus Christ is to live each day and every day as if the Lord will return the next instance. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Christ 
may return at any moment. Beloved, be ready. Be ready. So point two, nearer now than ever before requires that we stay focused on the mission of Christ. We must stay focused on the mission of Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this question. If you truly believe that Jesus could return at any moment, how would that impact what you're doing in life right now? If you truly believe that Christ could return at any moment, how would that impact your life right now? That's a compelling question. It's a compelling question because it's so easy to get off mission. We have to stay focused on the mission of Christ. You know, the, the Bible tells us in so many ways that if we are off mission, the, the potential exists that Christ could, could, could come back when we're in that state. That's why I ask you to look at Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is part of what's called the Olivet Discourse, beginning in Matthew 24. And that's where Christ starts to really lay out some of the, the thoughts he had concerning the coming of the age, the end of the time. And there's a parable in Matthew 25 that I just want to, uh, to share this morning because I think it speaks directly to the issue of the consequences of being off mission. Uh, if you all recall, Matthew 25 opens up with the parable that Jesus teaches about the ten virgins who were waiting on the bridegroom. And their charge was to keep their lamps trimmed and burning. That's a little story we teach our kids. Well, five of the virgins were keen to do about what the master had told them to do. And they indeed had enough oil uh, to keep their lamps burning. But five of the virgins did not. Their story picks up in verse 6. In verse 6 of Matthew 25, it says, But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish one says to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. In verse 10, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feed, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. In verse 12, But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. There is no, there's no getting around the point of this parable. Jesus is saying that if you are my disciples, you will stay focused on my mission. Pay attention to my words and what I have told you to do. Here's the bottom line. Stay on mission. Do not lose focus. What is the kind of oil that the Lord wants us to have in our lamps. 
I call it the oil of the Lord's mission. It's a mission that demands that you focus on how you live, not where you live. Focus on how much you give, not how much you get. It's oil that focuses on how to bring others in versus keeping people out. It's a, a focus on how to know Jesus more intimately versus simply knowing more stuff about him and missing the fact that he's coming soon. Now, let's contrast that with the other five versions. The other five versions did not have the Lord's oil in their lamps. I contend and could argue with you today that what they had their lamps filled with is what I call the oil of emptiness. Well, what is the oil of emptiness? I think the the oil of emptiness is going to Rome and doing as the Romans do. I think it's a, a big challenge for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ not to have in their lamps the oil of emptiness that fills us with anything other than being on mission for Christ. You know, here's a couple examples of the oil of emptiness. It's a life that's empty of contentment. Rome was never satisfied. It was always focused on having the latest and the greatest. It was all about keeping up with the Caesars. Christians ought to live as the most contented of all people. For we have the greatest possession of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Get rid of the oil of emptiness that is empty of contentment. What else is an oil of emptiness? Uh, It is the oil that is empty of love and peace and instead is filled with envy and strife. Rome was very skilled at pitting people against one another. Rome would not overlook a fault for the sake of maintaining unity and harmony. It's the kind of emptiness that would say, if you say something bad about me, I'm going to get you back. You know, that kind of emptiness will always keep the church fighting internally and losing its witness externally. We have to ask the question, what kind of oil is in our lamp? Is it the oil of Christ? If it is, then we are to stay on mission. Or is your lamp filled with the oil of emptiness? We need to understand that because the master may return at any moment. We need to stay on mission. Well, here's my final point. Nearer now than ever before requires that we stay focused on the enemy of Christ. We really need to stay focused on the true enemy of Christ. I'm not your enemy. Brothers and sisters in Christ who love one another, we're not your enemy. But there is an enemy out there. Keeping Christ, the return of Christ, in the forefront of our mind and staying focused on the mission of Christ 
we must understand the attack from the enemy against our faith. And again, the Bible's clear. It doesn't leave us to wonder what that attack is. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, how do we wage this war? We, stay, we wage this war by staying strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And, and, we, we, and in doing so, we stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, my hour is far gone. And so I need to, to wrap this up by saying again, as we understand salvation is nearer now than ever before, we need to stay focused on the return of Christ. We need to stay focused on the mission of Christ. And we need to stay focused on the enemy of Christ. So Doug's going to come here in just a second, and we're going to sing our closing hymn. But as we do, to, do that, let me just remind you, Satan looks to drive this unity in the flock. We need to be on guard against that. You know, love is the crowding jewel of what the church should all be about. And we need to be careful that as Satan attacks our unity, that we push back, understanding that soon and very soon, the king will be returning.